Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to and brothers and sisters, to Christchurch Jerusalem, to our evening Bible study, uh, the book of Leviticus. We are entering chapter 6, and we acknowledge that the Lord is present. We believe in an omnipresent God, which means he's here with me, and he's here with you at exactly the same time. Same God, same spirit, and that actually unites us as family, as believers, as friends, as part of the household of faith. And that builds community, and it's a joy. But we also know that we need to acknowledge that the Lord is present, and so we begin with prayer, and I'm going to ask Sharon from Canada to, to pray us into our t- tonight's study. Lord, we just praise you and thank you so much for this day, for this uh, chance to spend time with your fellow believers around the world and in podcast land, Lord. And we just thank you for the privilege of meeting us here, Lord. Meet each one of us in and out of this little uh, setting. And we just pray that you would meet each one of our needs, our very deepest needs, Lord. We thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word together and having it in our hands, Lord, for the men and and women that have sacrificed their lives and been burned at the stake to put it put it in our hands that we can study it, Father. And we just thank you for the privilege of being able to look at the words ourselves and think about them and having an education to be able to do that and and know what we're doing and, and see by your spirit, Lord, to be spoken to by your spirit and touch us and, and, and cleanse us and purify us and make us a people clean that are useful to you, Lord, that are u- useful vessels for your purposes on this earth, Lord. In these quiet, dying days of earth, Lord, we just ask that your will would be done in each one of us, Lord, you complete the work that you've begun in us and strengthen us and mature us in our faith, Lord, this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Sharon, for reminding us that uh, this book, this treasure comes to us not only through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but through the blood of the martyrs. And we appreciate their offering to us. Okay, as is our tradition, we read the, um, the, the summary from, from last week's study should be attached on the notes and uh, also be there in the uh, in podcast for your download. Leviticus 5, 7 to 19 was last week's study, and our summary is as follows. In describing the requirements for the sin offering that we've been talking about, the korban, chetat, we note in summary that this sacrifice is for unintentional sins. It was either sourced from an unblemished animal or the grain of fine flour, which is unscented. It involves also a confession from the trespasser and atonement from the priest. Since chapter 4, the sins have included every level of Israeli society, the priest, the leadership, and the commoner. All are equal before the law, although Each brings a sacrifice that they can personally afford. Unintentional sins include such things as being silent with the truth, ritual uncleanliness, and misspoken oaths, among others. In our discussion of the text, we noted that sacrifices and offerings teach about the holiness of God. God does not tolerate sin, even unintentional sin. He cannot, for he is truly holy. And he is perfect. Unintentional sin is still sin, and even silence and doing nothing is a sin. In the book of Revelation, 
God vomits out the fence-sitters, those that do nothing in the church of Laodicea. Now, we found lots of grace of God in this passage during our discussion. Whether they were rich or poor, God wanted holiness to be evident in everyone. Once awareness of the trespass had come about, there was a desire to be back in relationship with the living God. Recall that the name of the book is He Called, Vayikra. This is a calling. Everything about this book is a calling. We are called to be restored into our right relationship with the Father. And for Moses, there was a way. Everyone has access to restoration. Money was not an obstacle for any Israelite, as the flour pancake was just as efficacious as the blood of an animal, which made us ponder the phrase, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This verse occurs in Hebrews 22 and is not, I repeat, not a direct quote from Scripture. Leviticus 17.11 says, it is blood that makes atonement for your life. How does this unscented plain flower prove efficacious in this context? This is a tension that we will wrestle with as we continue further into Leviticus. So it was a good discussion. We recognized that Hebrew said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Yet we were reading in Leviticus that you can offer flour for a sin offering, which has no blood in it. How does that work? So we need to, we need to wrestle with that wonderful tension that you find in the Hebrew scriptures. We also discussed that a rich person has to provide a worthy sacrifice of his wealth. He could not choose to bring the flour pancake in place of an animal if he had the means to purchase an animal. We noted that there is a similarity in the story of Ananias and Sapphira for bringing a false offering, saying that they were providing all the proceeds of the property they had sold. They had not been honest and were literally slain by the Spirit, which is a different meaning of the word, I guess, for many Pentecostals. For ourselves, as disciples of Jesus the Messiah, we should always endeavor to give God our best. He has always desired our whole heart and a full commitment to walk after him. Now, confession was part of the process for forgiveness. Confession teaches us humility in having to publicly admit to the Kohen that we have sinned. Confession has the implication that you actually agree with the Lord that you had indeed sinned. The New Testament also encourages us to make confession both before God in 1 John and to each other in the Epistle of James. For many churches and communities today, liturgies contain a prayer or confession or a time is taken during the worship to privately confess. The next sacrifice that we see in Leviticus is called the guilt offering, the asam. The guilt offering involved essentially the same procedure used with the sin offering, but had to do with trespassing against the holy things of the Lord. What are the holy things of the Lord? Well, they're not listed in the text, but part of the restitution involves adding 20% of, your, of financial restitution. 
So this has some commentators suggesting that the holy things are in regard to tithes, financial vows, first fruits and stuff, anything that involves uh, money. Anything attached to God is holy. His name is holy. It's attached to him. The Sabbath, which he created, is holy. The temple where he dwells, that's also holy. The people whom he called, they're holy. His scriptures, they're holy, and so on and so forth. So anything attached to the Lord is by definition holy. God takes holiness seriously. Unfortunately, many of our modern communities do not see the value or meaning of something holy. When something was done against a holy thing, then a sin offering wasn't enough. It had to be a guilt offering. And hopefully we will talk about that in today's, today's uh, study. And a financial restitution is also required. Now, that's interesting. Ignorance of the law is not protection. We are not allowed to say to the Lord, I didn't know that that made you angry. We're all supposed to have an awareness of the Torah. Why? Because today it is written on the hearts of the faithful. Is it not? Yes. So we are all supposed to have a knowledge of the Torah. So we should know when we've actually offended the Lord and wish to desire to be right with him. So that's a little bit of a uh, discussion. So we are going to read, um, actually, we're going to read the first seven verses of chapter six, and we'll see how far we get. If we actually finish this, I'll be, be wonderfully surprised, and then we continue on discussing a series of different offerings. Uh, in the rest of, of, of chapter six and seven, you begin to um, enter a series of different styles of offering. They're not just one. We've been talking about the sin offering for the last couple of chapters. Now we've been introduced to the guilt offering, and, and later on there'll be, there'll be um, some more. So I'm reading uh, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord, how? By deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care, or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and then lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people say that, might, might, that they might commit. When they sin in any of these ways, and that they realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to them, or the prop lost property that they found, or whatever it was that they fall, they swore falsely about, they must make restitution in full and add a fifth of the value to it and give it to the owner on the day that they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven 
of any of the things that they did that made them guilty. This is the word of the Lord. Ooh, thanks be to God. All right. So few short verses, but based on a Peshat, on the literal reading of the text. Is there anything that jumps out? That um, uh, is one of those things where you go, okay, that I got to talk about, or I haven't noticed that before. If you look at um, this restitution, if you've done something wrong, how come it's you only you have to restore what you've taken and add a fifth to it? But how can we look at Zacchaeus in the New Testament and he was he gave half to the poor, which is something different, but he was stored if he deceived or took anything falsely from somebody, he gave fourfold? Why is there that sudden discrepancy? That's a very good question. So, okay. So what we have here in the text is financial restitution of one-fifth. What we find in the New Testament is financial restitution one-quarter, so they've added a little bit. Any thoughts on to why you might have added a little bit uh, based on uh, the movement from this is essentially even before the First Temple period, but we'll call it the First Temple period, the, um, the, the, the Mishkan in the desert and the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem and the Mishkan in Shiloh, where it was one quarter. To by the time of the, the second temple period, it's become um, uh, one, one fourth. So one fifth or one fourth. Any ideas as to why we've advanced? Inflation. Don't, don't just say inflation. Okay, Rocky. <laughs> he already said that. <laughs> yeah, I have a comment on this, if I may. Okay, go right ahead. Uh, we have a commentary about this one uh, by Rambam. Uh, his commentary's name. So first of all, does everybody know who the Rambam is? His, his name is Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon. He's a rabbi who lived in somewhere in Europe in uh, one, 1000 something 50. Uh, yep, he, he's the 1200s, the Rambam, and he's living in um, Alexandria. Okay. And that's his famous, he, he's incredibly famous. And he's actually buried here in Israel somewhere. No, no, he's, he's buried in uh, Europe somewhere. Spain, I think. Rambam? Yeah, that's what I know. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So his, his book called Mishneh Torah Sefer Avodah, and he claims something very different that came to my attention. He says, this additional fifth is not a fundamental requirement, he says. He says, this additional fifth is a deterrent penalty, and the deterrence is the aim of punishment to discourage the offender from criminal acts in the future. And he claims that the additional fifth is required only when he or she benefits from the article they had stolen. If they don't benefit from it, so the additional fifth, it's not a fundamental required. That's what the Rambam says. That's the only commentary we have about this additional fifth in entire rabbinic Judaism. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, so Rambam is 12th century, so 1100s, late 12, uh, early 1200s. So we're looking now 1,200 years after Jesus and someone's finally bothered to make a comment about this one-fifth. And what's, what's his comment? His comment is, it's a deterrence. Why do we have to add a, add a fifth? 
well, that's actually a deterrent. You mean, you mean it is to stop you from, from stealing anything because you'll have to just pay back more. So that's that. That was his his comment, and um, uh, and and he adds that interesting little thing, but only if it's actually valuable, <laughs> which is a which is an interesting little comment there by the Rumbum. I wonder what was going on in the eleven hundreds, twelve hundreds that made him make that comment. We're not sure, but he wrote an incredibly long book called the Mishnah Torah, where he essentially made a comment about just about every piece of halacha. Is that right, Mordecai? Yes, and he is also buried in Israel. You were right. So oh, is he, he? has a statue yeah. in Spain somehow. That makes my mind. So and, yeah, well, well, Spain's got uh, Saint Jacob, Jacob, Santiago. Okay, yeah. anyone seen those great movies about the pilgrimages <laughs> that, they, that they make? Um, which is a lot of fun, by the way. Um, but yeah, I, I do remember seeing a sign saying Ramban's tomb. It's like, oh my gosh, what's he doing buried here? I thought he was Egyptian, but, uh, <laughs> but he, somehow he managed to get to Israel and died. Okay. Um, and well, he just claims because he's not the central authority in our religion. So that's what he thinks. But the scripture says that he needs to add the fit. But Raman thinks and claims that according to oral Torah and the traditions that he had learned from his rabbis, that if they benefit from it, then the addition is required. Otherwise, it is not required and it's not fundamental. Okay. Yep, so he's, 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 he's wanting a benefit to come from you, which is interesting. The text doesn't say that, but that's interesting that um, in the Middle Ages, that's the way they were thinking. Okay, um, Vida, got a hand raised? Sorry, I've got another question. This makes me think of Elijah, Elisha, when they, he's with those people and they're cutting down with it and the axe head gets lost in the water and the man panics because it was borrowed. Is that because of this law? Yes, most likely. So the guy who, who had borrowed the axe suddenly is like, oh, my gosh, I have to pay back the axe. And not only that, I have to add another 20%. I ain't got no money. Um, I'm, I'm, real, I'm toast. You know, he's like really panicking. Um, and I, I, I guess when any of us borrow things from other people and then we break them, we lose them. And, and usually it's by accident. Come on, we don't deliberately do that. Um, how many of us immediately jump to it's okay? I'll pay for it and I'll add some more for the trouble. Most of us don't. Um, I'm going to share a little story, not a very nice story, that uh, I was in um, America. Sorry to all my brothers and sisters in America. <laughs> and I was watching football with some friends, American football, which is not played with the feet. It's played with the hands. So I don't know why you actually call it football, but you do. Okay. Um, <laughs> You tend to throw the thing. They don't call it throw ball, but that would be silly. Anyway, American football, which I think is a fantastic game. It's like chess, but actually played with humans. Um, very interesting game. And as we were watching on this guy's big screen TV, and it was a really big screen TV, beautiful thing, just fresh out of Costco, and um, massive, massive thing, took up half the wall. It used to be uh, used to have either LED crystals or um, um, uh, can't remember what the other one was, but the the gas in this uh, TV broke. Like the whole screen just popped, and suddenly everything went black, and TV broke. So, what was the first thing out of the guy's mouth? It's a wonderful brother in the, of the Lord. First reaction was, "Who do I sue?" <laughs> like what? 
you just take it back to Costco. You just say, look, that thing broke, you know, they give you another one. But, uh, but somehow instead of actually looking at property and, um, and just honestly caring for it and, and not trying to, to hurt anybody and want to make restitution of anything if it breaks, we, we, we automatically come to a very defensive model. It's not my fault. Nothing's my fault. I ain't going to pay for nothing. And I, and I need to take, and that's actually a little bit sad. The, the, the text here is, is we actually need to guard other people's property. And should something go wrong, we're going to pay for it. But uh, anyway, it's in connection to this thing called the guilt offering. Okay? There's this difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering. Uh, multi, what, what, in, in, the, in any rabbinic circles, what do you guys understand of, of the guilt offering? Well, I think we have already spoken about it uh, because of Yvonne's question the, the other week. The guilt offering called in Hebrew is Asham Talui. Basically, it's an offering which protects somebody from punishment as long as the fact remain in doubt. So basically, if somebody doesn't know if they commit sin or not, so they bring this Asham Talui in order to protect themselves uh, from being punished by God himself until the, uh, the thing, you know, undercovers. And so if somebody is in doubt, then they bring this offering. It's a guilt offering. It's not a sin offering. If they, you know, after uh, discovering that they had sinned, then they have to bring a sin offering as well. So the guilt offering does not protect them anymore. <laughs> okay. So the guilt offering can also be in conjunction with the sin offering, which yes. is different. And yeah. I find it very interesting that the guilt offering involves money. Yeah. <laughs> this sort of yeah. this restitution with money. Sin offering does not. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Any other questions? Otherwise, we'll start having a little look at the text. Uh, Vida, you got another hand raised? I'm so, I'm so sorry. It made me think when you were talking, uh, Moti, if the guilt offering is and the sin offering both need to take place, my, my question is, in the New Testament, it says in Hebrews that the sacrifice of Christ cleanses our conscience, which all the other offerings could never do. Is that pertaining now, in a sense, to more the guilt offering? I know Christ covers us for everything. I, I, I get that, and that's not what I'm saying. But this conscience, that we don't have that conscience anymore through, through the knowledge of Christ now, um, is that pertaining in that scripture referring, in a sense, to the guilt offering? A clean conscience, right? So we yeah, still have a clean conscience. conscience. Yeah. Aaron, would you like to go first? <laughs> well, the, what I find in the theology of the entire Bible, when we discuss the sacrifice of the Messiah, whom we know was killed at Passover, we, 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 we leap to this idea that, okay, he's, um, he's, he's the ultimate sacrifice. He has covered every sacrifice that there is. But when you start to look at the different sacrifices, there's actually different levels, different meanings, different implications. And, um, and, and so when you get into the New Testament, they start saying things like, well, he also covers our clean conscience. Not only does he take away our sin, but and, and so I think that the, the, the writers of the, of the New Testament are also wrestling with what exactly does the sacrifice of the Messiah look like for me in relation to all of the sacrifices that we find in the Bible. 
because what we're going to find in this short text is you will have the opportunity to not just bring an animal, you'll be able to go and just give money and it will be the equivalent. How would I say such a thing? Um, what circumstance in the New Testament do you know or what story do you know of somebody who would be paying lots of different monies into a chest in the temple and Jesus, who is watching all of these things go about, suddenly says, this person has paid the most. Mm, the you woman with the might. Yeah. And, um, and so what you're going to find in this text is you could come to the temple, you haven't brought an offering, but you could give the equivalent amount of money and that would, that would suffice, which is an interesting thought because does it also not say that it is the blood that makes atonement? Mm. All of a sudden, by the second temple period, it was money. It's an exception, not a rule, though? Well, let's read the text. Let's, let's find out because we might actually find that there's something in the text that actually says something. Remember, what we've discussed in chapter 4 and 5, and sometimes we've missed some of it, although I've tried to put it out a little bit every now and again, remember that there is forgiveness. You have to go and confess before a priest. That's got nothing to do with sacrifices. Yeah. But it has got something to do with sacrifices because you still got to make one. And right. so there's this, these things that are tracking together that give you the, the overall picture of what's actually happening when you're actually repenting before the Lord. And, uh, and, and again, um, and I'm really looking forward to having a discussion when we get to the verse that says, and the priest will make atonement, not the sacrifice. Which, 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 which we'll get to in a minute. So, so Rocky, you've got a hand up. I'll honor your hand. What's, what, what you doing, buddy? Well, yeah, I was just uh, wondering about uh, in Exodus, Exodus 22, when a person was guilty of any of the offenses already specified here, uh, they were condemned to make a fourfold restitution at that time. Say that again, that there was a, a fourfold restitution? Yeah, in Exodus 22. Yep. Uh, when they were guilty of the same offenses specified here, yep, they were condemned to make a fourfold restitution. Yep. So there's a there's a fourfold restitution, which is what you see with um, uh, David when he kills somebody, he has to pay back four lives. Here you have the monetary obligation of five, but when you get to Zacchaeus, he switches it to the four. He does it the little one bit a little bit more so he takes verses that are in the torah and he makes sure that when he pays back he pays back the most that's listed down okay he doesn't go for the 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 least which he probably could have but it shows you his heart and his intention he actually leaps to say no i'll I'll pay them the, the the highest possible fine you've got give me the highest possible fine i'll, I'll pay that and, uh, and that's how I'll make it all right. Okay, so let's have a look at uh, chapter 6 and, uh, and keep those questions coming. The Lord said to Moses, once again, who's not being addressed here? The people. Aaron. The people. Aaron, yeah. Oh. So, you know, Aaron's the high priest. 
Aaron's sitting in the tabernacle. Aaron has the ephod. He's got this breastplate sitting on his chest, which has, you know, the direct communication to heaven. Yet for some reason, God likes to talk to Moshe. So there's something very special about this kid. Okay. And uh, there are some times when it's Moses and Aaron. And when those, those verses come up, we will make attention to it because they are the exceptions breaking the rule. So whenever you see a verse that says, and God said to Moses and Aaron, you sit up, pay attention, because, oh, my gosh, we're actually talking to Aaron now? Oh, my word. Something's going on. Yeah, and there's parts where he says, speak, to, well, the Lord spoke to him and say, speak to the people of Israel. So there's a couple times where he does that too. In the Correct. And again, that's when you've also got to sit up and pay attention and go, why, why suddenly are we broken with tradition? Okay. So the Lord is speaking to Moshe. He has a very special access to the Lord. And, um, and here we go. If anyone sins, now, in the previous sins, we've been talking about unintentional sin. Now we actually switch to actually a sin that is intentional. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's very rare, very rare in, in the, in the um, uh, Leviticus. And yet it's the intentional sin that requires financial restitution. Now that's interesting. Okay, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor, well, that's intentional. That can't, it's not unintentional. We've got, we've got an intentional sin. Okay. about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbours. So we've got some extortion going on here, pretty bad stuff. If they find lost property, that's always a good one, and lie about it. So we've got lying, cheating, stealing, extortion. I mean, these are obviously some of the big ten that we're breaking here. Okay, We're breaking two of the big ten commandments here. Um, if they find lost property, lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such thing that people might commit, when they sin in any of their ways and realize their guilt, interesting phrase, they must return what they have stolen, taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to them, or the lost property that they found, or whatever that they swore falsely about, they lied about. And they must make restitution in full, and they've got to add then 20% of the value on the day that they present their guilt offering. So a, that was five verses. There was a lot of verses and a lot to un, unpack. Okay, Sharon, you've got a hand? So I wonder how often this happened, Aaron, because just, you know, one of those cross-reference verses in Hebrews 9 says, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance, you know, back to one. <clears throat> but so how often, I mean, every time people, you know, would lie and cheat and steal, I mean, they must do it a lot. So they can't just be running to the temple. I mean, the tabernacle at the time regularly. That's, a, that's a very good question. So the, 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 the passage you mentioned in Hebrews is a reference to Yom Kippur. So they're having a definite, um, in Hebrews, a halakhic um, or a midrashic discussion on high priest Yom Kippur sacrifice. So that's something actually separate. Um, that only occurred once a year. Um, and the, but you're 100% right. People sin all the time. Who the heck is running to the, the tabernacle, which happens to be living in Shiloh? What happens if I live in the Galilee or down in Elat? And, um, and offering a, cat, uh, a lamb, which is unbelievably expensive and not always easy to get access to. Um, 
it's a it's a good question how much of what we are reading in Leviticus is actually being done on a daily basis and how much of the text is being discussed and thought about in terms of its relationship to the Lord, its spirit of the law, the Ruach HaTorah, the spirit of the law, and um, and the, the intention of what it's meant to actually be. That's a very good question. And, and what we probably find is that people didn't offer as many sacrifices as we think that they did. They actually, they actually discovered, or as they were working through the text, they actually discovered the spirit of the law, okay? And which is what you find in the New Testament where they're constantly berating people, particularly Gentiles who have no understanding of the law, get to the spirit of the law. Don't stop, stop worrying about the, the, the funky stuff. You'll never get to Jerusalem. You don't live anywhere near it. Plus, the temple got burned down anyway. Get to the spirit of the of the law, which we Jews have been wrestling with for quite some time now. So this, so if I'll jump in for a second there, Aaron. So this sin offering mentioned in in this chapter, for example, like Madi, is there a timing or a certain day that that's offered? Is that like a once a year thing, or what is the sin? Like how often does it say anywhere in Leviticus? How often? I mean, whenever someone commits sin, it just brings in a proper time. Oh. There were three sacrifices during the temple, so he needs to bring it to any of it, I guess. So there, there are as, three, as, as, there sorry, are three as, daily sacrifices which are given yeah. before the Lord, and those are for a perpetual worship. This is a guilt offering. It is different from a sin offering. The sin offering could be an animal or flower, yes, and it was for an unintentional sin. A guilt offering was for an intentional sin, particularly to do with lying, extortion, or or some sort of false dealing with a neighbor, and 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 it had restitution and had a financial aspect to this to this sin. But okay? as you said, Reverend, I don't think it happened very often during the temple time because there were like over millions of Israelites and they basically commit sin every single day. So I don't think like hundreds of thousands of people line up in front of the temple, brought a lot of animals, you know, maybe some some very religious Haredi, Hasidic guys who lived at that time might have did it. So Right, because this chapter is about intentional sin, not unintentional, Aaron. Like at the beginning you were saying how the, a lot of those things are, you intentionally deceive your neighbor. It's not kind of like, oh, oh surprise. Yes, <laughs> this is, this is, an intentional sin which has been realized. Now, what does it mean by I've just realized what I've done? How would you realize what I've done? It was pointed out to you. Yeah, you got caught. <laughs> Somebody caught you. And it's all public now. So, oh, my gosh, yes. They've realized I've been extorting this person. They've realized I actually lied, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I've been found out, well, I'm guilty. Can't hide. I better go make restitution. And the first thing I've got to do is I have to restore to the person I've offended. Oh, where have I seen that in the New Testament? Matthew, Matthew, where uh, Matthew chapter five, <laughs> where he says, um, if you are offering your guilt, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go first, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your guilt, your, your gifts. So there's that 
And there's that reference to, you know, Cain and Abel in that chapter, but, and also Zacchaeus in Luke, because true repentance goes, but, you know, it's not just saying, oh, I'm sorry, but it actually, you correct the wrong by full restitution. So Zacchaeus also in chapter, I think, is it Luke chapter 19? Something like that. But the, the, the Matthew reference was the one I was looking for initially. You're 100% right. When I bring my gift to the altar, what is my gift? What gift am I bringing to the altar? Your tithe, you know, maybe stuff, you know, like practical mm-hmm. things like crops or herbs. Right. But what am I not bringing to the altar? Sacrifice. I'm bringing a gift. If I was bringing a sacrifice, the word would be sacrifice. So there's something, I'm bringing something else. And I've realized that uh, I've got something wrong with my brother. So I'm going to go and make restitution first, which is what you find in Leviticus. Make sure you pay the guy back first, add a fifth, and then go come to the Lord. You've actually offended two people here, right? You've offended the human and you've offended God. Both require some restitution, okay? Both, Both need to be made right. You can't just get right with God and not get right with your fellow man. That's not, not what you find, not in the Hebrew Bible, not in the New Testament. And, um, and so that, that, that relationship's got to be restored. But in the New, here we discover that in, by the time of the New Testament, people, animal sacrifice wasn't as prevalent as we think that it was. It was still going on. Yes, absolutely. It wasn't mm-hmm. possible without the temple, you said, though, right? Correct. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't offer a sacrifice not near a temple. So if I was living in Babylon with Moti, or Moti and I are hanging out in Athens, we can't sacrifice a Passover lamb. We might celebrate Passover, but we wouldn't do it with a sacrifice. We, I don't know how we would do it. That's very interesting. I actually haven't seen a text yet that describes how people in Mechutzlaaretz, outside the land, actually celebrated some of these feasts without sacrifices. Um, but it's interesting that, that theologically they had already figured that out. In uh, the New Testament and in Talmud, we see that the Jews, I mean, most likely the rich ones, uh, usually came to Yerushalayim to celebrate the festivals. But I don't think that the entire Jewish community who lived in the diaspora was that rich. So we don't know exactly how they celebrate the festivals. Basically, I think that they celebrated the way we celebrate today. Yeah, Moti, you're probably you're probably right because let's remember that after the um, captivity, the first captivity from the destruction of uh, the first temple, uh, the majority of Jews actually lived outside the land of Israel, and um, which obviously meant that they had no access to a temple. So obviously, first of all, there wasn't one. But even after there was there was one built, you still didn't have access to it. You were nowhere near it. Yet you were a faithful Jew. You read the Bible or had somebody read it to you. Um, you discussed it and you thought about it. And so you had to figure out what is the actual intention of the text because there's so many things that I can't physically do. Um, and, and so a lot of that stuff is already being highly developed way before the advent of the Messiah. Okay. Uh, okay, Vida, you've got a hand raised. It was a long time ago, so I don't know which one you're referencing anymore. No, it was just as you as we were talking, it really made me um, appreciate what Christ did for us. 
because we now have this new covenant where the Holy Spirit is the one telling us what we've done wrong. I was just thinking about Rambam, where he's, where he's really justifying exactly what kind of conditions explicitly you need to pay that. Birth. And, you know, it's, we, if we're not careful, we, we must, you know, I can see God's heart looking at the Jewish people thinking, what are they doing? And they're <laughs> manipulating and they're squeezing his law to the nth degree. And that wasn't God's intention. And so I think with this new covenant that we have with the Holy Spirit now convicting us of that sin, we're daily coming to the place of repentance. Because Amen. the minute we do something wrong, we are, the Holy Spirit's warning us about it. And this, Absolutely. And this covering, so what do, you, what do you actually see as the intention of this guilt offering? Is that you've, we you've, just... We, may, we firstly apologize to God. We humble ourselves to God. And then if we have done something, we have to make it right with that person. Sure. Because it's, it is definitely a two-way relationship. But yeah. it's just it, also the holiness of God. It, yeah. it's, it's just awesome to think how holy God is. And, and God wants our relationship with our brother to be right first. Have exactly. you noticed that? You pay back first. And then it says, bring your guilt offering to the altar, yeah. which is exactly what you see yeah, in Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Go make yourself right with your brother, then come back and give me your gift. Because we, we often, we often, because we're humans, we go, human, God, God's the most powerful thing on the face of the yeah. planet, universe, et cetera, et cetera. I will worship him. I'll have my entire being focused towards him. Sounds great. Absolutely fantastic. Excellent. At exactly the same time, God's turning around and saying, I've actually made a whole bunch of you people. There's like 9 billion of you people sitting on the planet. Um, anyone noticed your neighbor? I happen to love him just as much as I love you. So kind of, can you, can you kind of get that stuff right? Then come and talk to me. In Matthew, it's really an allusion to Cain and Abel. because. Oh, that's interesting. Whoa. Okay, so unpack that one for me. Oh, he just, uh, you know, he, uh, he, here, let me go back to Matthew. Um, let me get my Bible. Where he says, uh, if a gift at the altar, if your brother, therefore leave the gift before your altar first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer. So remember the whole thing about this. I mean, he was the jealousy and not, and then uh, with um, Abel. And um, so he, you know, sins crouching at your door. And of course, the whole thing of going first with Abel deal with the brotherly <laughs> issues there and then go and bring bring the gift yeah okay i can see that nice little connection that's fantastic yeah two hands raised i'm going to go sharon because you're the lady and then uh rabbi mordecai is that okay <laughs> sharon what have you got yeah it's really powerful because the thing is i wonder how this all relates right so what does this verse mean right so in hebrews 9 the next verse after verse 8 the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So it's like these things that were in the in the first covenant, you know, the old covenant, whatever you want to call it, those things are like a picture of, you know, Christ who was to come, right? So it's like, what would be missing? What was like, what was, what does that verse mean, for example? Well, put it into context. Hebrews is saying, that priests, they offered sacrifices on, a, on one, a daily basis, and two, they themselves died, right? right. So you, you had to find yourself a new priest. Eventually the guy dies. Good as he is, he's going to die. 
and 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 sacrifices were good they actually like as we see in leviticus make atonement and forgiveness but they're not they're not long lasting they don't they don't last forever and ever like every time you sin you got to keep doing it again and so hebrews says well that priesthood okay that's fine but we got a better one that's what the book of hebrews is all about we have a superior priesthood he doesn't say that the order of melchizedek replaces the levitical priesthood he says the order of melchizedek is better there's a big difference between those two thoughts right okay? and messiah jesus is not levitical why because he's from the tribe of judah he cannot be a levite yeah. right and when he's on the planet he doesn't walk around and say oh, hi i'm a priest he yeah. becomes the high priest post resurrection which is the theology of the book of Hebrews. Okay? So and it picks up body, the pattern of the order of Melchizedek. So is okay? his body, Aaron, the, the, the tabernacle in the New Testament? Is Christ's body? Because you know that verse like... We're Christ also the temple. It's all, it's, it's yeah. It, be very careful in trying to, to, yeah, to go into too many pictures. Um, we are the temple at the same time as there was a temple and there's a temple in heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, it's, you, you've got to remember, hold in Jewish thought, hold tension in parallel. That's the, I don't know how, how to describe it other than just keep journeying with us, ladies and gentlemen, and keep embracing yeah. the wonderful tension. But and the New Testament too is Jewish as well, right? It's not. Of course, Jewish. absolutely. And it's wrestling with, it's wrestling with a lot of these thoughts. In fact, the book of hebrews a lot of the theology that you find in the book of hebrews you actually find in the dead sea scrolls so it's not like it's unique sometimes people think oh the new testament it's unique and no one ever thought like that that's actually not true you will find similar thoughts in rabbi akiva you'll find similar thoughts in some parts of the talmud you really will you'll find some thoughts in in uh, similar thoughts in um uh dead sea scrolls uh, sometimes you, every now and again, you'll go, ah, even Philo of Alexandria managed to hit on a winner there. And, and the Jewish thought was alive and well in the second temple period. That, that's what we Shem, your verse in Hebrews 9 verse 11 really does uh, clarify that right. this is a Christ is now the tabernacle not made with hands. Yeah. And so it, it, he is that tab and we're in that, we're part of that yeah. tabernacle. So yeah. yes. Yeah, so there was there was there was a fleshly one. It was taken down. There was a temple which was destroyed. There might be another temple which will also be destroyed. But you then what's the permanent structure? It's you and me, right? But that doesn't take away from the holiness of a building. That's also the other thing you've also got to remember. So uh, okay, back to Mordecai, which I can't remember why you raised your hand in the first place. But what you got, buddy? I don't, I don't remember either, but anyways, I just wanted to <laughs> say something about the Kohen providing the atonement, if I may. Uh, as we have been talking about the New Testament and the Old Testament, and it's the same story, one book, you know, it fulfills each other, but we see some main differences in the Brit Hadashiah. For example, here it says the Kohen shall provide him atonement before Hashem. So basically... Kohen, the priest, a man in the family of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, is providing the atonement, not the korban, the sacrifice itself. It was a huge privilege and a duty that was given by God 
to a special small family members, male members of that small family. But in the Berit Chadasha in John 20, 23, Jesus tells to his disciples as it follows, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So you see the difference? In the Old Testament, only the male Kohen from the tribe of Levi was allowed to provide atonement to somebody. But in the New Testament, we see every single good disciple, good standing disciple of Yeshua is allowed to forgive the sins. So no more privilege to a small group. You can you can rip up your little Kohen uh, certificate of your name, huh? I'm going to throw the title from the doorbell, so. <laughs> Aren't we all now in Christ a kingdom of priests? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the New Testament says. So, yes. That's why we, we can forgive each other and it's not retained. Yeah. But I think see, what Mordecai yeah. brought to our attention is a very interesting literal part of the text. The sacrifice does not make atonement. The text says the priest does. Oh, yeah. Now, no, I'm no, Sharon, if you, if you keep thinking that the sacrifice is what counts, remember, look at the process. In the sin offering, forgiveness. You forgive first, okay? You have a sacrifice that involves flour, no blood, okay? And when you get to a guilt offering, you need to, you need to, you, you need to go and pay restitution. Pay. Who pays to get into heaven? No one. Okay, so 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 be very careful when trying to superimpose clause unquote New Testament theology on this. The 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 point is the sacrifice isn't the be all and end all of the process. It's part of it. You need I, a priest. I, yeah, so you're saying back in Leviticus time, but I'm saying no, both. You need a, you need a sacrifice and a priest together. Who's that in the New Testament? Christ. We have Jesus. Yes, it is. Absolutely. You have both. So exactly and who's the one making restitution with our brother? You and me. Us. Okay. All of us. Correct. Exactly you can see, you can see the same theology in the Hebrew Bible showing up in, in the New Testament. Absolutely. It's all very, very well clear. And so there's that interesting thing that shows up. It's the priest that provides covering. And it doesn't say because of. Right? It's all no, part but, of a process. Right. But yeah. to Vita's point, though, Aaron, if you don't mind just jumping in for a second, to Vita's point, she's saying that in the New Testament, that's what's changed about the whatever you want to call it, about the, the way the process or how we all interact, that we're yeah. all priests forever now. And we are. The Spirit. That is correct. And also, when you go into churches that are a bit more traditional, which is the guy that gets up and announces the assurance of forgiveness? The priest. Yeah. Now, why? Why can't anybody do that? They can. They can. But in a traditional way, it can only be done by a priest. Yeah, but, because... that's, tra but that's tradition. That's, yeah. And it, well, it's a and role. Again, yeah, but it's, it's, you can't find for me they use that verse to justify it. No, no, no. They're not. It's what the because you also have as Mordecai is saying, and, and quite rightly, everyone forgives everybody else. When you're coming for a corporate worship, then you have different roles. 
you have in a corporate worship setting you have someone who leads worship you don't like you don't have a guy who's visiting from timbuktu suddenly walk into church and go hey i think i'll play the guitar today Mm -hmm. they're not going to happen right no you will have a dedicated worship team who has practiced now where do you get that idea from well you're not going to get that idea from the new testament okay you get that idea from the hebrew bible where david you get people practicing worship the sons of Korah, who are who are dedicated worship leaders, you yeah, have obviously we've got evangelists and we've got uh, pastors, Correct. we've got all these roles, and we Correct. have to honor those roles. I absolutely yes, agree. But yeah. ultimately, I don't feel forgiven if a priest, a, a human priest, will sound forgiven. I know I'm forgiven because my high priest Christ. Correct, told me I'm and that's great, Vita, and that is absolutely fantastic. But sometimes. Sometimes some people who come to church and they know in their brain, but they don't feel the assurance of forgiveness. They still need to hear somebody say, I need to remind you, you actually have the forgiveness that's in the Messiah. But shouldn't that priest, and I'm just being an advocate here, shouldn't that priest be saying, you have been forgiven because of what Christ did? They do. Shouldn't they, it, you know, it's it, sometimes I feel the priest say you as, as if they're in that role, you're forgiven. And, I, and I'm not running down the cat. I just, I've been to one or two Catholic services where I've heard that. And, it, and I'm thinking, surely you should be building your people up to rely on Christ and not going to the priest to be yeah. that person. Yeah, and Aaron, so, I, would, I would throw out that verse that there is one mediator now with the new covenant which is clearly a new covenant, slightly different or whatever you want to call it, like the fulfillment of the old or whatever, however you want to term it, there's some quote unquote differences, right? So now in the new covenant, we're all priests, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, chosen of God, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, we are accountable to God directly. I can pray with my next door neighbor on a Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock in the afternoon and teach him about Christ and his sacrifice, and he can be saved. Yep. You know, but Sharon, not- you okay. always could, even in the Old Testament. Right. So I'm not because, I'm not, it, because I'm in not Exodus that. 17, because in Exodus 19, God says, You are a kingdom of priests. So everyone's right. actually a priest, every single tribe. Hannah like, was praying the in front of the temple. She's not a priest. Right. A so woman. I'm not debating the theology, Aaron. I'm agreeing, but they're two parallel things. They're two different topics. Like I'm talking about how we can all relate to God now and that there's one mediator now between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he's the ultimate priest. But then obviously like you or anybody that chooses to be a teacher in this group, right, or in podcast land, is, you know, taking on a role of responsibility that God's given us uh, pastors and teachers and, you know, da, 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 to build up the body and to equip them to go to all their neighbors and share the truths of Jesus Christ. So we're all priests that have been given the ministry of reconciliation, like everyone yeah. on the Zoom cast, is, right? Do you Absolutely. Agree with that? Okay. And, and everybody was even in antiquity. It was all the same. There's just a, a bunch of different roles. So here what you have is you have the priest comes along and says or finishes with the atonement but there's a process that comes with it and inside a worship service you have a process now whether you take the way priest out and put in anybody 
who's the person that's going to get up and remind people that you've actually got a relationship with Jesus? It doesn't matter what title you give the person. Even if you say everyone who's come, the 100 people are sitting inside a church, everyone has a direct relationship with Jesus. But if no one, no one gets up and says, you have forgiveness, be assured, I'll just be silent because you'll all just talk to God individually and know. Somebody will leave there going, well, actually, I'm 100% sure. Somebody still has to get up and do it. And so you have a role and a function. Where does those functions come from? Those are your shepherds. Where do those the idea of those shepherds come from? They come all the way through the Bible. And so you've got a a deliberate calling and a a role. The priest is not the person offering forgiveness. That's 100% sure. It's the Messiah. And even liturgies make that 100% clear. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, the priest does not forgive sins. Here it is written as uh, the Kohen providing atonement before God. So God forgives, not the Mm. priest. But he is the one who provides it. So basically the same thing in the traditional churches now. The priest does not say, oh, I forgive you. Give me 10 bucks now. He says, I forgive you according to what it's written in the New Testament and according to what Yeshua had told us. So It's a process and it involves humans. So Jesus forgives, yes, but at the same time, he says, you go out and forgive. And if you don't, they're not. Yeah. Humans join in with the redemptive plan. It's an incredible mystery, which you actually see in Hebrew Bible and you see in New Testament, the same theology running through because it's the same spirit. It has to be. Okay, so going on to Yvonne and then Sharon. Yeah, I see the same process. I don't see like, uh, you know, whatever, two different ideas for me. uh, Well, from what I see in the Bible, the priest He's like the shaliach. I mean, he's the shaliach sibur, the representative of the community. So he's he's the representative of the community in the sense of the temple. And the same thing, Madi, when you, you went to John 20, um, 23, I was just looking a few verses before that, where Jesus said to them, Yeshua, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So it for me, it's so... Uh, this whole shaliach, the apostleship, you know, it goes, you know, the, the priest representing the people, of course, ultimately before God, and then God giving the same shaliach, the same idea to the son, Jesus. And now then Jesus gives that, that shaliach, uh, the sending uh, principle for, for us as well. So for me, it does seem like it's actually a very smooth kind of that transition of the priest being the Shaliak Sibur representative before the temple. And then of course, God giving that to Yeshua, Yeshua then sending us. So that sending principle for me, it really just puts everything together and it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. The book of Hebrews is constantly trying to remind us that these priests that were before, and it doesn't talk about priests in a negative way. Hmm. It says that they were appointed, they were anointed, they were doing, they were in custodians of the holy things. Their big problem was they were mortal. They had to keep offering sacrifices all the time. It, it, it just was this perpetual thing. And then Hebrews comes along and says, but guys, we have a superior high priest 
Wow. who's of the order of Melchizedek. Oh, my gosh, what an incredible order. And everybody's going, what is that order from? It's, you know, this, this mystical thing that appears in, in Genesis and it appears in the psalm and there's not very much there in the text, but it's, it's developed in the Second Temple period. The Dead Sea Scrolls even has some discussions on it. But the, but the book of Hebrews comes along and says, our high priest never dies. And our high priest only had to walk into the Holy Hall of Holies once. And our high priest only had to offer a sacrifice once. And so, oh, my gosh, you know, this is the best thing since sliced bread. You know, you've got to have this. And, uh, and then and, and, and goes on, um, yeah. which, of so, course, we all believe. So, yeah. So I was just going to say, Aaron, that that so this is just a different it's 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 obviously all the same principles and stuff throughout it, as, as Yvonne says, but it's just a different system in Leviticus versus now in the New Testament and the new covenant with the church. And, you know, like Ephesians and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to be a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Da, 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 da. So it goes on about not being tossed about with different winds of doctrine and stuff, okay? But the concept is there. So exactly what you're saying, it's not it's not at all taking. So I apologize because I probably have said seen like that over these different weeks that I don't, you know, mean to not respect, you know what I mean? The different offices, like these offices that we have in the New Testament, in the New Covenant under the church setting. So there's just that quote unquote difference, if you want to call it, but it's like, it's like, so isn't it more accurate to say it's like a different system in Le Leviticus? A different like, system? Like in other words, it had to be a Levite, for example. It couldn't just be, you know, Joe, <laughs> Joe, uh, you know, Ben David or whoever, you know, like. Uh, right. So in, in God called, God in, in Exodus, says to all of Israel, you're a kingdom of priests. He then turns around and chooses a tribe, the Levites, to be special. You go, hang on a second, you just told everybody that we're a kingdom of priests. Now you're making more priests? What's going on around here? So there, is, there are certain roles that, that all of us have. We're all equal before the Lord, absolutely. But at the same time, some of us are boys, some of us are females. Some of us are, are priests, some of us are computer scientists, some of us are school children, you know, some of us are Scottish, you know, whatever our um, thing is. Look, well, the Scottish people like right up on the list. They're up there, you know, just three <laughs> steps above, above computer scientists. And, uh, Isn't that the way it works? Okay. But you know what I mean? Why do you think? Now, we've heard Rumbum come up with a discussion as to why we have to add 20%. We, we know that we've ripped somebody off. It was deliberate. We got caught. We had a guilt moment. The Holy Spirit worked on us, whatever. And we suddenly realized, oh, my gosh, I've got to pay it back. We've had a Zacchaeus moment, and we're going to make restitution. Okay, Rambam's says uh, it's for a deterrent. Why do you think we have to add 20% or even a quarter? Why? why what, what, what's your thoughts? There's nothing in the text. It'll be whatever you think. Any ideas? Doesn't it go back to that special ch shekel that we talked about last week? Okay. P unpack that for me, Damaris. What were you thinking there in, in relation to the shekel? Because this was um, chapter 5. Yes. It relates uh, that sacrifices were related to a, a, a weight, a shekel, a value. Um, I'm taking this from the Humash. Okay. And it says, um, it's talking about the sacred shekel. 
the Torah specifies the weight in silver of the shekel, which Mati talked about, but it also talks about um, when they're making restitution, the person who misappropriated the sacred object must pay its value to the temple treasury, but then it talks about a fifth. Mm-hmm. So the transge- transgressor adds one quarter to the value of the principal so that he pays five quarters to the temple treasury. If he took an item valued at four shekels, he would pay back five. Thus, the additional payment is a fifth of the five quarters the violator is required to pay. Yep. Okay. It was a penalty. Okay. It was That was the penalty. That was the fine. Okay. Simple as that. Could be. Anything we say would be fair enough because the text doesn't say. It just says, when you pay back, add something. So let's let's take it down to our level, okay, brothers and sisters. Okay, we borrow from somebody, we break somebody else. We go over to somebody's house. I go visit Kate's place. Look at look at her picture in the back room. She's got all these beautiful teacups, ceramics, and stuff like that. Imagine if I go and visit her, pick up one of these um, coffee cups, and then um, drop it. What should be my initial response? Obviously, I say I'm sorry. Uh, look. Can I, can, I, can I make you another? Can I figure out how to pay for this back? And what will I do? I'll add a little bit more. Why would I do such a thing? To show that you're genuinely sorry to... Could be. It could be as simple as that, Linda. It could be simply I, the heart intention is, I'm sorry, I, I'm so sorry, I'll prove it to you. Whatever you tell me it's worth, I'll, I'll actually pay more. Because I, I didn't mean to drop it. I didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't want to break it. There's no, no possible way. Um, well, I could get a, a bunch of flowers, you see. With, it could be like you can have the cut back and here's some flowers to show you. Okay. Yeah. And, Something and like that. It doesn't have to actually be money, but it could be this go a little bit further. Yeah. Patty, what were you saying? Well, even if it's an accident and it was completely out of your control, you didn't mean to go smash the cup. Like, what, what Patty is referring to here is the actual text we're talking about is lying and stealing, which is intentional. Accidents are unintentional. So perhaps I probably, I, I've, okay. I've, I've misrepresented the text, my <laughs> fault, but, um, but, it, but the text here is actually intentional. And, and one of the things is even if you find lost property. Now, I remember when um, I was at Hebrew University and I was walking to one of my classes. Uh, I was in Ramahay, level five Hebrew, and I found 100 shekels on the floor. 100 shekels. Now, to a poor student back then, oh, my gosh, that was a lot of money. That was like nectar from heaven, okay? A cup of tea in the coffee shop cost me three shekels. So this was like a whole month's worth of tea, okay? Um, But it's not mine, is it? There's some poor student who dropped 100 shekels. And so I picked it up and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, how can I possibly find the owner of this thing? Obviously, I'm not going to stick it on a notice board and go, you know, dear students, who lost this? <laughs> okay. You know, the first teacher comes on and goes, well, I did. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so I was actually standing there. And what actually happened? Here's what actually physically happened. While I'm wrestling with this tension, the teacher comes in and he looks at me and he goes, Aaron, what's going on? I said, I found this 100 shekels and I just don't know who I'm supposed to give this back to. And <laughs> And he was religious. He was a religious teacher. And he looked at me and he says, you've actually already fulfilled the commandment. He said, you'll never be able to find the, the true owner of this, but 
you wanted to. So that that's actually because remember, the spirit of the law is the real part of the law. That doesn't mean that you don't try and return the property. It doesn't mean you don't try and obey the commandments. But the spirit of the law was the key. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's right. The spirit of the law is the most, most important thing. Okay, so we don't know. We don't know why they added 20%. It could be a fine. It could be just, just to, to help us, prompt us to give more. What, if you take something, what is it that you took? What do you mean by that question? What did I take? I took somebody else's stuff. No? I took your pen, your favorite pen. Yeah. I didn't just take the pen. I took a bit of you. I took, I took something, uh, I, something in relationship. God is all about relationship. You've, when you steal, you take more than the physical object. How do you repay greater than the physical object? Well, there's two ways. One would be to befriend a person or to repair the friendship which may not necessarily be possible, depending on what was done. But you can always give a little more because you broke the, the, the covenant of relationship, not just simply taking an object. Very nice, Tom. Thanks. You brought it back to uh, the heart of it. It's about relationship and it's a restoration of a broken friendship and a relationship. Thanks, man. That's great. Yeah, and adding on to that, I mean, I guess the same thing. It's uh, when you, the false oath, right? It's actually, you're showing your un, unfaithfulness to the Lord by taking that, that false oath, his name. And then you also show unfaithfulness to your neighbor, whoever, by, by also offending and taking. I know a friend of mine, she was robbed here in, in her house, was, was robbed and in uh, here in Brazil. And, and uh, she said, gosh, when, when they came and, took the things at the house she they were sleeping and, and she said it was just such it's exactly what tom said it was like it was she says it wasn't even you know just coming in the house and taking their things but it was like taking part of us it, it was such a, a personal like uh, against you know the, the essence is she it just uh reminded me of what tom said it really is part of you feel like you have been violated in a sense it's you defiles it defiles yeah, right and then another thing was very interesting um when we were in israel the last trip no the time before um we went with uh one of the pastors one of the pastor of our church we he came along with us and um we were in the, the jewish quarter at one of those stores and he had left well, he, we, we went back to the hotel and he's like, oh, I, I lost my wallet. I don't remember where I placed it. And I said, well, where was the last place that you went? And he was like, oh, that store in, you know, the old Jerusalem, the, the Jewish, that Jewish quarter. And so we tried to trace back and it was already 530. And I, I thought, you know, he said, oh, I think the shops are closing by whatever. I think the shops would be closing by six. We didn't know if the traffic, we'd make it there. We got there after six, so the shop was still open. And I knew how to say it in, in Hebrew, like the wallet, you know, and so he went up and it was a, a, a religious rabbi, or I don't know, he was a religious shop owner and uh, not a rabbi, a shop owner. And um, when we went and, and I, he said, oh, it's impossible. Come on, you know, <laughs> a wallet gets stolen in Brazil. You'll never get that back. And uh, it's impossible. I said, well, let's try. So we went up to the, to the storekeeper and, and I said, oh, please, you know, um, uh, his wallet. And I, you know, I said in Hebrew and he says, he opened the drawer, <laughs> took the wallet and he says, 
yes, Ken, hello, you know, is this your wallet? And then we're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know, and then he shook his hand and I went to shake his hand and I forgot that you can't touch them. But anyways, and it was like, wow, he came back and he was like, that's amazing. That would never happen here. And I thought, you know, if you follow the tour and understand the relationship and how you can defile yourself and defile yourself with the Lord and your neighbor, it's, it's just so Holiness and relationships. Yeah. Yes, the it keys that we see in Leviticus. Okay, Moti? Yeah, I mean, I still wonder about the hundred shekels you found. What happened to that? Did you give it back? Did you give it to the give charity? It back? Yeah. yeah no. You kept it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's just so complicated. Someone here in the chat, Patty, asked about it. So do you still get to keep it? Well, the rabbis made it super complicated. Believe me. We have studied it for like 11 classes in the Yeshua. And some say, oh, if you repair the thing you have found, you don't need to give it back. So like they were like looking for a remedy for, you know, not to give it back. So basically, if you know the owner, just give it back. That's as simple as it sounds, you know. I just yeah. wanted to say that in the rabbinic Judaism, they always try to find the remedies for this kind of questions. They always try not to give it back <laughs> by, by making a lot of laws. There's a Christian conference in, in um, Britain over the over Easter for three weeks, and they said it was held in a holiday camp. You know, one of the famous holiday camps in well, different in a few different holiday camps in England. And they said that the owner said to us once, "You Christians are either the most forgetful." Or the most honest because we get much more lost property handy than when you guys are here than for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah. Praise the Lord. So the last thing I want to say is on verse six. Uh, and as a penalty, you bring to the priest that is the Lord. Isn't that interesting? You bring to the priest that is to the Lord. There's this this idea that there we we, we are representatives of God. Mm-hmm. Okay, think about the burden that that is. Okay? A ram from the flock. This guilt offering does not involve flour. This is an expensive sin. Okay, intentional sin is an expensive sin. One without a defect. Okay, we understand the whole idea of you know, the tabernacle is perfect. We've discussed that kind of stuff before. And of the proper value. Why add such a thing? Okay. And so what happened is, you know, obviously you have different types of uh, animals, small ones, big ones, medium ones, expensive ones, cheap ones. So they became like a baseline. This is how much the animal's got to be worth. Well, if it's worth a certain thing, maybe I don't have to bring the animal. Maybe I can just give you the money. And that's what you ended up having. And so by the time of the Second Temple period, okay, by the time of Jesus, you could go to the temple Make your appropriate offering, but it didn't actually have to be an animal. It could be dun da dun da money. That's why he turned over the money changers. Change, yes, money was yeah. everywhere, and people were putting together. in all types of money yeah. into a chest. And we sometimes read that as, "Oh, they're making a donation." No, they were paying for their 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 offerings. Tithes too, eh? Yeah. It doesn't say tithes. It's offerings. They it's were doing, and and, uh, and 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 so it's it's it, it turns it into a little different. Uh, it, it turns this, the temple into a little different 
model in the way we, we often sometimes think. Remember, they had already ish, discussed the issue about blood in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the diaspora. What do you do when you don't have a temple and you can't make sacrifices? Can you still be forgiven? Well, obviously, Daniel says yes, because you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will refuse to bow down to idolatry, can't make sacrifices. So what was the point? Right? If you can't make a sacrifice, if that's the baseline, if that's your baseline, can't make sacrifice, so therefore you're dead, why bother defending yourself against idolatry? Just, just bow down and you know, save yourselves. Who cares? You're dead anyway. So that's not the way Jewish people thought. They had already wrestled with this, and the answers are already there in the text. The spirit of the law is what we try and, uh, and look for. And so, all right, so in summation, very quickly, we have a guilt offering. It functions the same way in terms of the sin offering, it'll bring it to the priest, etc. This is a different set of offering. It's, a, it's an animal sacrifice based on an intentional sin. It involves financial restitution, which the sin offering does not, which makes it very interesting when, he, when the Corinthians says Jesus has become our sin offering, which is very interesting. Okay? Um, this is a financial restitution that you make with your neighbor because God cares about our relationships with our neighbor. He cares about our relationships completely okay, and, and being restored. Uh, and then within the process, it does involve a sacrifice. That is true. But the text will still say, no, no, the priest will make the covering for you. Right? You Remember, they, they run hand in hand. You can't have a priest without a sacrifice. You can't have a sacrifice without a priest, which we find both of those roles in the Messiah Jesus himself and as the as the leviticus says they will be forgiven which is a very nice uh thing to say to someone who deliberately has done something wrong they have deliberately done something wrong they have deliberately sought to make restitution they have deliberately come and confessed to the lord and the the blessing that the assurance that they say that you get is you actually are forgiven. And that is one of the blessings that uh, the church has to say to the world today. You deliberately have done something wrong. I get it. You deliberately have had admitted your mistake. I get it. You've deliberately wanted forgiveness from the Lord. You will get it. You will get forgiven. And that's something the world cannot offer. Only the Messiah can. All right, guys. Thank you very much. We will continue on uh, next week with a series of different types of offerings for all different reasons. And um, hopefully we're going to have a discussion. What does it mean for Jesus to be a sacrifice when there's lots of different types of sacrifices? What do they all mean? And et cetera, et cetera. Okay, guys, I have a little bit of read up about that. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.